Hey, you listen to podcasts. Can I assume you like audiobooks as well? And if so, can I please hope you're not a member of Audible.com yet? I've been a member for over 10 years, and now I've joined their affiliates program, which means you can get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial and support Bionic Planet by going to audibletrial.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's Bionic Planet is one word with no dots, dashes, or spaces because the system doesn't seem to accept those. And you can support me by signing up and checking out their services. It might even work if you're a member. I don't think it does, but give it a try. They've got over 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. If you know anything about IKEA Group, the giant Scandinavian furniture company, you know that most of their products are made of wood. And you may even know that they're one of the good companies that tries to buy only products that are sustainably harvested. They've pledged that by 2020, 100% of their wood, pulp, and paper will either be recycled or certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as sustainably produced. So far, they're on track to achieve that, according to the Forest Trends Supply Change Initiative, which tracks the progress that companies report towards achieving environmental commitments. The supply change entry for IKEA shows the company was 61% of the way towards achieving its 2020 goal as of March of this year. Two months earlier, my colleague Kelly Hamrick at Ecosystem Marketplace published a report called State of Private Investment in Conservation 2016, which I was flipping through this morning while researching today's show. In so doing, I learned that IKEA has also started investing in forests all across Europe, explicitly to make sure those forests are managed in ways that serve a larger public good and help the company meet its sustainability commitments. As of January, when the report came out, IKEA had purchased about 100,000 hectares of forest in Romania, Bulgaria, and the Baltics, and it had earmarked more than $1 billion more billion for investing in sustainable forestry. Make no mistake, they're doing this to make money, but to do so in a sustainable way. And that means this qualifies as impact investing, which is any investment that's designed to generate both a profit and a larger public good. The Global Impact Investing Network has identified more than $30 billion of impact investments in the last three years. And Kelly's report, which I alluded to above, identified about $8 billion earmarked for impact investments that specifically involve forests, farms, and fields, all of which need to be better managed if our civilization is to survive the climate challenge. Now, $8 billion is nothing to sneeze at, but it really is just a sneeze in a hurricane compared to the $55 trillion global economy. What's more, on top of that $8 billion, another $3 billion was allocated but went uninvested. If you're an optimist like me, that means there's plenty of room for growth. Today we speak with Noel Claire Lacan and Richard Frenopfel, who run Impact Investment Group AlphaSource Advisors and see big opportunities for people who want to make money by helping the world better manage its forests, farms, and fields in the new epoch that we call the Anthropocene. 
Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know its ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth and your guide to the restoration economy that I believe will help get us out of this mess. The restoration economy needs entrepreneurs and venture capitalists, which is why Noel Claire Lacan and Richard Frenopfel started AlphaSource Advisors. I spoke to them back in May at the Innovate for Climate conference in Barcelona, so you'll hear some background noise, but it's not too bad. I apologize for taking so long to deliver this, but if you want more and more timely episodes of Bionic Planet and better produced ones to boot, consider becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. I'll tell you more about that later in the show. For now, let's get to it. Now you're, you're a $250 million fund, and you have $30 million so far. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about where that money came from and, and how you're pitching to outsiders? And also focus a little bit on how much of that money is coming from uh, foundations and how much of it is coming from uh, profit-seeking investors. There are 100% profit-seeking investors. Uh, uh, there's a, a foundation uh, who's doing a PRI investment with us. Jargon alert. PRIs are program-related investments, which are investments that foundations make to support activities they believe in, but also to generate a return. I might start looking for some PRI money myself so that I can bring you more and better episodes of Bionic Planet. They have full expectation of return. However, they happen to be much more focused on the impact, and it's their mission of the foundation. So we're particularly excited about their support because our goals are exactly aligned. Then the other 20s coming in from high net worth individual, who's also hyper-focused on the impact, but expects is the, the uh, market rate return that we're offering. So, um, and you know, that's, that's very important to us to send out the message uh, because often impact investing is associated with concessionary returns. Sorry to be back so soon, but concessionary returns need some explaining as well. They simply mean returns that are below market rate, but still positive. So if you invest in a sustainable coffee project, you might accept a lower return than you'd get in a more cutthroat endeavor 
but you'll sleep better at night knowing that you're not working poor people to death or contributing to the degradation of forests. I first heard of impact investing from Amy Dominey back in 1999 or so. She's a true pioneer in this field, which is why it's her name on the Dominey 400 Social Index, which launched in 1990. One thing I clearly remember from our conversation was her differentiation between socially responsible investing, which refers to investments that aim to do good and accept a lower return, and sustainable investing, which refers to investments that both aim to do good and expect to outperform the general market over time. The theory being that sustainable investments should have less risk because they invest in companies that treat their people and their land right, so they don't face strikes and lawsuits and other unexpected events. Amy, at the time, was skeptical of the sustainable investment theory, but she felt it was important to be putting your money where your morals are and accept concessionary returns. Ironically, the Dominey 400 has, in fact, outperformed the S&P 500 by about a half percent per year over the last 27 years. That adds up. We believe that uh, impact investments are, are can actually enhance returns and lower risk. So, uh, you know, we, we want to make sure it's clear that in addition to the impact are market rate returns. <clears throat> Just to add on that, one of the things that's really important to us is that we're in a space we want to be in. Impact space has always been, in our minds, a place that's very collaborative and very inclusive. Not everybody feels that same way. Some people want to think that they have special sauce that needs to be protected. We think there's plenty of room. And what we want to do is, is kind of prove out a model. You know, a year from now, when people see that there are non-concessionary returns in a fund that's focusing on something that people haven't really dipped their toe in that pool yet, that others will follow behind us and support the entire market and help us have air to breathe in the future and not be underwater. Yeah, physically, or, or, but also financially, or, or parched somewhere inland, which is where you guys mostly work. I mentioned at the start of today's show that I joined the Audible.com affiliates program, which means you can get a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial if you're not already a member. If you are a member and log in through audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet, that's Bionic Planet as a single word, no dots, dashes, or spaces. It may still give me credit, but I'm pretty sure you don't get a discount. Still, if you're a satisfied member, as I've been for over a decade, you're at least getting something you value. One book I've been enjoying and recommending lately is Behave, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst by Robert Sapolsky. It pairs well with Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, because both of these books help us understand the precognitive drivers of our prejudices and moral blah-de-blah. Haidt comes at it more from a psychological angle, while Sapolsky comes at it through neuroscience, but they both end up examining the ways that evolution forged the neurological, psychological, whatever pathways that to this day make some of us quiver with anger when someone kneels instead of stands before a symbol of loyalty and the way we viscerally respond to people and situations we don't know much about. Both of these authors are teachers as well as researchers, so they both know how to tell a story, and Haidt actually narrates his. 
Both of them will help you identify, understand, and purge your own prejudices, and they even offer clues for helping us rescue people who we perceive to be trapped in illogical ideologies. Although you might also end up so thoroughly questioning your own beliefs that you don't know where you stand. Another audiobook I've been surprised to find myself recommending is Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened? I got it first on Kindle because I travel a lot, so that's how I get most of my books. And I realized that it was conversationally enough written for Audible, so I got it there too. Hillary narrates it herself, and she does a great job. If you've read the negative reviews as I had, you'll be shocked to read the book. It's incredibly insightful, and it's mostly about policy and how to move forward. Yeah, the last election provides an arc, but how can it not? You can get any one of these audiobooks or anything really in the audio library for free, so there is absolutely no risk at all, and you can support me at the same time by going to audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet, again, without the hyphen. That's audibletrial.com forward slash bionic planet for your free audiobook. We'll get into your investment areas shortly, but can you tell us what ponds you're fishing in? You know, who who are your investors and, and how do you pitch them? So uh, in, in terms of who we're pitching it, we're, we're, we're just building an ecosystem. So, and that's expanding, you know, as we come to events like this. Um, so, you know, the folks who have the same goal that we have, are you know are, are the ones who are most receptive to the conversation however we also have investors who are are not particularly impact focused but they're just in it for the return so you know it's a an ever-expanding uh, target audience especially with uh, institutional investors it's really about fitting into the mandate that they have that might not have anything to do with impact um, but it might have to do with a woman-run fund, which this happens to be. Or really whatever gets people to the table and gets the, the needle moving in the right direction is okay with us. And in terms of our pitch, uh, we have acknowledged that the forests, for example, in the DRC are surrounded by communities that can afford to protect them on their own. So we feel that if, if someone doesn't help them, and we lose that forest, then we've lost the, the fight against climate change. So uh, our, our primary goal is to help those communities to become sustainable so they can protect their own forests, so they don't need folks like us forever. We can give them that boost and uh, at the same time create all sorts of alternative livelihoods so that they don't have to also uh, invade their own forests um, to, to produce low-value commodities. And, and at the same time, we can be protecting the biodiversity uh, within those forests. What Noelle is talking about is, is so right on, is that to the degree that we can come in and help an entire landscape, you know, that sits, let's say it sits around a Red Plus project, but sits alongside sustainable mining or sustainable timber or, you know, forest agriculture, to the degree that we can make those communities and make those businesses within those communities sustainable, right? That's the difference, right? I can sum up the difference right there, is that no one has to come back a year later and put another million dollars in. We can come in now and support businesses that are investable and that just need some capital to scale and some time uh, and some support maybe with, um, with technology that we can bring in to help them be more efficient, right? Ag tech, Internet of Things technologies, because we, we've invested in disruptive technologies in the past because we think it's a huge part of impact investing. And uh, climate smart 
and climate smart. Agriculture. Right? So to us, that's really the whole thing, right? Is that you make these communities, you make these businesses sustainable, and then there's no need for the philanthropic element after that. That's what drew me to the whole payments for ecosystem services thing. This idea that we were creating sustainable finance by paying for a service that we need and will therefore keep paying for, rather than just being philanthropic and doing good that we might change our minds about. Specifically with payments for ecosystem services, we're, for example, paying indigenous people to manage their forests which mop up our own carbon dioxide emissions and slow climate change. Or developers who damage wetlands or habitat are paying farmers and others to restore nature, and in ways that more than make up for damages. Richard touched on a phenomenon that I've experienced firsthand with philanthropy. Namely, donors like to fund new things, but they don't get excited about existing projects that are generating good results. So you get these waves of well-intentioned finance flowing into new projects based on cool PowerPoint presentations, but you don't get back-end payments flowing into those endeavors that are actually generating verifiable results. Payments for ecosystem services are the opposite. Money usually flows after the forest has been saved or the wetland restored, so the buyer can see exactly what he's getting. I'm trying to do something like that here as well. So far, I haven't gotten any funding for Bionic Planet beyond what you, my listeners, send. Although my employer, Forest Trends, has let me develop these partly on company time because they know that I'm harvesting their research findings and sharing them with an audience that doesn't usually find them. I'm sure you've noticed, however, that these episodes come out irregularly. And if you'd like to hear more and better episodes, you can help by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. I've set the patronage page up so that you can support me per episode, but with a monthly cap. So if you think $5 per month is good for a five-episode month, you can pledge $1 per episode, but with a $5 cap. That way, if I don't manage to generate five episodes in a month, you're not paying for something you didn't get. And if I go nuts and deliver 20 episodes one month, you won't get whacked either. By the same token, you can offer $5 per episode or 10 or 50 or whatever. If that's asking too much, you can give me some positive energy in the form of a good rating at iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you access my show, or you can share Bionic Planet with friends. Of course, if I can make a solid enough business case, I might approach some impact investors myself. Which brings us back to the topic of today's show. Now, I mentioned Kelly Hamrick's report, State of Private Investment in Conservation 2016, which you can download via the show notes of episode 21 at bionic-planet.com. Kelly makes an appearance in the second half of today's show because she dropped by while I was speaking with Richard and Noel. In fact, it was Kelly's findings that prompted me to grab them, and here's why. Kelly found that from 2004 through 2015, Investors directed $8.2 billion towards projects that preserved forests, protected watersheds, and restored wetlands, among other things. But as I mentioned before, they allocated an additional $3 billion, but left it on the table. We'll address that in the second half of the show, but here's another interesting finding. Most of the money that did get invested 
went into sustainable agriculture and sustainable forestry, like IKEA's investment, rather than into distinct payments for ecosystem services. Noel and Richard caught my eye because they are going against the grain. If you go to their website, alphasourceadvisors.com, you'll find they're investing in nearly a dozen red projects. Red as in R-E-D-D, which regular listeners know stands for reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation of forests. Red projects use carbon finance to save endangered forests. And you can find out more about Red in Episode 7 called Of Milk and Money. You know, I've been coming to these meetings for years. Uh, this is uh, technically the first one that's called Innovate for Climate, but I went to about eight of the carbon expos. And every year we'd hear about this mythical creature, the impact investor, who was going to ride in on a white horse and save the day by recognizing that red projects are uh, viable commercial endeavors. But you're the first ones I've ever seen. Now, I look at your portfolio, and I see that you've obviously been around a while. You're invested in Wildlife Works and Mimbariah, which are big red programs, but I've never seen you at these events, and I was wondering if you could share your impressions with me. A, I've been called lots of things in my life. Mythical is not one of them, so that's <laughs> pretty cool. I like that. Uh, Mike Korczynski at, at uh, Wildlife Works described this uh, event last night as a, as a type of reunion, and that's kind of the the vibe that I get from this place. There's people who've been in the space for 20 years or more. And then there's kind of an influx of people. And I guess we're, we're among them that are coming in maybe uh, hopefully with an infusion of energy, but that really want to move capital and really want to, to start making some hay in the space, which I think is only good. We just came out of the blockchain event, which, uh, which I think has lot very large implications for this space. Can you briefly explain what blockchain is? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it possible? <laughs> um, well, bl- blockchain is a, is a technology, um, uh, really, a, a really kind of a platform, a distributed platform. So people talk about the cloud a- as distributed, but it's really not. Uh, the cloud is a, you know, a server farm somewhere that has risk associated with it because it's in a single place. So it could go down, it could be compromised. Uh, blockchain is basically taking little bits of information and distributing it potentially across millions of computers across the internet. The implications of that, as you can imagine, are are limited only by your imagination. A lot of people equate blockchain with Bitcoin as just kind of a currency, but really it's about any digital asset that, that has an agreement behind it that needs to be enforced digitally. So it, it potentially takes a lot of the chaff out of the process in terms of uh, different parties that are taking a cut and uh, and taking time. So you can kind of imagine that what the implications are there for carbon uh, and what the implications are broadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I missed that panel, so I don't have any questions, <laughs> but it, it sounds fascinating. I want yeah. so we'll to do a whole I, episode I think I said that. that right. I mean, there are people here who know a lot more about it than I do. But they're, they're dangerous, though. They start talking <laughs> and they <laughs> will right. never leave. That's right, that's right. I looked into blockchain, and for our purposes, I'll summarize it as a way of embedding ecosystem values in the cost of a product. But it's actually much broader than that. It was developed for Bitcoin by a person or group of people called Satoshi Nakamoto, which is a pseudonym. And it makes it possible to distribute, but not copy, 
digital information. Looking at AlphaSource's portfolio, I see a company called Viridium, which was created by Infinite Earth. That's the same company that developed the Rimba Raya Red project that I mentioned earlier. And I've written about them extensively. I'm big fans of those guys, and I will try to get them on the podcast. You were talking earlier about how you got into this in Red Plus, and Red Plus is when you're using carbon finance to pay to save endangered forest. One of the reasons that's interesting to me is we did do this study, Ecosystem Marketplace did a, a big study a while back, a big survey of impact investors who were explicitly putting money into sustainable land use. And they broke, Kelly, uh, Kelly Hamrick is sitting here with a pear in her mouth. <laughs> She's the... <laughs> She wrote, wrote the report. So Kelly, I'll just you can just tell me if I'm getting anything wrong and wave and or if, okay, I can hand it over to you when you finish. As I recall, uh, the, what the the key finding on this was that there was eight billion dollars, right, flowed flowed into sustainable land use, of which five billion went into four. Sorry, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it was eight point two billion tracked over twelve years. But what I think was the most uh, significant finding was that we had tracked another three billion. A little bit more than that, I think, that had been um, committed but not yet deployed. So it was sort of waiting in the wings, um, which so that just to us at least meant that there was really huge potential for really scaling up the market quickly. Most of it went into fairly standard uh, agriculture projects but that were done in a sustainable way. And then a lot of it went into sustainable forestry. There was very little of it going into things like Red Plus. And maybe you can flesh those numbers out. It might have been around $5 billion to sustainable agriculture and forestry. And we had a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, I think part of it is just because those types of investments have been around longer and people are more familiar with them. Um, also, just in terms of the size of those investments are usually quite large um, compared to, you know, some of the other different types of conservation that we were tracking that might have been smaller scale. Um, so I think it was probably a mixture of both. But as far as forest carbon markets, you know, it, there aren't a whole lot of compliance markets that allow for forest carbon projects in them. So a clear source of demand is really hasn't yet materialized, um, at least on a lot of the compliance markets. And as far as the voluntary carbon markets, I think that's just inherently more risky because, you, you know, there's never any clear source where you can you can go find a pool where you know that there are going to be voluntary carbon buyers. So that might be something where even impact investors are still a little risk averse. So just to summarize that very small amount of money that we tracked ended up in these types of distinct payments for ecosystem services like Red Plus or biodiversity offsets. And we assume it's because it's for two reasons. One could just be that they don't understand these investments. Investors don't. And the other could be that, hey, maybe the risk is just too big. The risk-reward ratio isn't there. Uh, and you can take it from there. Yeah, so there's certainly no dearth of projects, investable projects. However, there is a lot of capital in the wings because, just like you said, they don't have the mandate for direct investments into Red Plus developers or, or even credits. You know, they don't have the right risk-reward uh, mandate. So that's where we've come in to, to fill that void because we've had... Um, those very investors, those institutions uh, looking for that type of impact. In order to get it, they need a mitigated risk platform over a diversified um, array of, of projects and investments. Jargon alert, a mitigated risk platform means essentially that they're trying to identify all of the potential risks that their investors face and then either trying to reduce them in ways that we'll explore shortly or bringing in governmental agencies and others to act as guarantors. Ultimately, however, risk management is about doing your homework and knowing the lay of the land. 
more broadly, there are due diligence factors that are, that are problematic for a lot of people out there. I mean, you, you need to be very strategic in who you partner with. As we build out our team, we, we, we have a, a partnership with the Rainforest Alliance, which has 1.4 million smallholder farmers and 4,000 offtake agreements uh, out there. So, you know, in terms of boots on the ground, there's idiosyncrasies to all of these projects yeah. that we're talking about going into. And I think that's problematic for a lot of in- investors who want something that's a little more cookie cutter to make them feel safe. So, you know, we, f- we feel like it's very, very important for us to be uh, partnered with people who are boots on the ground, who've been there for a long time, who understand where things could go wrong that you might not think of unless you really, really had intimate knowledge of uh, a local knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that's very similar to, uh, do you know the Livelihoods Fund? Uh, I've heard of it, but okay. I, I don't know too much about well, it. Well, it's a fund that uh, Dannon started and it's since uh, spun yeah, off. Yeah. And they're, right. they're also doing, they're, they're partnering with in local NGOs and they're very, very, they've, they, it, it took years to find out the ones that they trusted and seeing the work that they've done in Kenya. Um, I've, I've done other podcasts on that. I think it was episode, I forget which, I'll splice it in. But <laughs> that's episode seven again, which was meant to be the first of a two-parter. If you listen, you'll hear that it's a feature package and not a straight interview. I actually think these features are the best way to tell a complex story. But they take a lot of time that I just don't have. Another reason for you to help me either by dint of a good review or by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. It's really fascinating to see how complicated these things are. And, And you mentioned uptake agreements. I'm not sure everyone knows what an uptake agreement is unless they heard that specific podcast. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that, one of you? And with an offtake agreement, which is just an agreement for a certain commodity. So, for example, Whole Foods would be one of the, the uh, important clients of Rainforest Alliance who could come to the table with an order and then we can reach out to some of these smallholder farmers and have an order in hand. So it's pre-sold, so they can plant a higher value crop knowing that they don't have to deal with marketing and, and selling that crop because it's pre-sold. Right. Yeah. I mean, just to, uh, you're basically shrinking, shrinking the supply chain there. One of the one of our areas of concentration geographically is Indonesia. We were just there last month, and you know they had a ton of pilot programs within this project that were there, and they said, "Oh well, let's see if we can plant uh, pineapples and see what happens." Well. Of course, in Indonesia, any seed that falls out of your pocket is going to grow, right? So, so we don't really need to worry about whether or not it'll grow. What we need to do is make sure that we have a potentially high-margin product and that they have, as Noel said, an agreement in hand that says, you know what, if you grow this, we'll buy it, right? It's brilliant, but no one's really been doing it, and that's where I think this, this kind of partnership for us uh, really bears fruit, no pun intended. Yeah. That whole issue of uh, offtake agreements, like, I think I called it an uptake agreement before, that was a huge epiphany for me in Kenya, seeing how these uh, small farmers with four acres and you had a dairy company, Brooks, Brookside, they needed to get make sure they had more milk. And they went to the farmers, they said, what can we do? And the farmers basically said, look, all we want is to know that, it, that if we make it, you will buy it. We don't even need a guaranteed price. And that changed everything. And that kind of goes into something else that came up yesterday. Someone on one of the panels um, I forget who it was. Uh, there was a question about what's the lever that's going to get this finance flowing. And the answer came back that it was the lever was 
the risk reward factor adjusting moving moving that and lower the risk and increase the reward and uh and it is it's easy yeah so let's just do it but it's it is interesting to see how it is an incremental thing and it is so complicated well you know it's interesting what you're saying because for large institutions it just has to be within their definition of acceptable risk so sometimes even even a, a small mitigating factor for risk can bring you into that area where it becomes possible mm -hmm. so and that's what we've done so you know we've taken it from a, a place of impossibility to a place of possibility mm -hmm. for some of these institutions who otherwise would it just wouldn't be within their mandate and let me kind of go back to where we started which was the that you're investing also in these distinct these programs like uh, wildlife works they weren't the first group to do red but they were the first to do it successfully and they commercially were the first certified yeah. yeah first certified under vcs i think i don't yeah, i think right. yeah. yeah and um but they weren't just the first certified they were they've been very successful yeah, yeah. um they know how to market and what drew you to them what if you they have a 20-year track record uh -huh. uh, and uh we've seen the the impact that they've created and the trust that they've earned in this community they've uh, already put down some infrastructure yeah, 20 years uh, of activity within the community but not 20 years in red they were doing sustainable that's right that's right. right clothing or something right correct yeah, yeah. they've done that's sustainable right. clothing uh, soap uh, they, they have a variety of different projects uh, and and of course they've sell, saved thousands of elephants mm -hmm. uh, and they've created a, a, a barrier so they've uh, eliminated the farmer elephant uh, conflict it's just amazing what they've been able to accomplish yeah. That, that's that's really what I what I love about that project is it was something that was completely mission based, right? Mike got there 20 years ago, and because he loved elephants and he saw what they were doing in terms of conservation there, this fence and shoot type of conservation, which was problematic and awful, and and he said, okay, I've got to do something about this, and everything kind of grew organically from there, right? So. He opened up every revenue stream that he could, whether it was, you know, textiles or soap or baskets or whatever, uh, to, to keep that afloat. But it was always with an eye towards respecting the community and giving back into that community and making sure that, that, that they were taken care of. That's one of the things that I really love about RED and how they're now aligned with, uh, with the SDGs and that there's, a, that there's a component of gender equity into it. Just to clarify, uh, SDGs are the Sustainable Development Goals. There are 17 Sustainable Development Goals, and they're broken into 169 targets, and every country in the world agreed to structure financing around them, which makes them a pretty big deal. Billions of dollars in finance are now tied to the SDGs, and I covered them in episode 5 of Bionic Planet, where we heard from this guy. My ideal goal will be that everybody will run its business plan and its objectives along the sustainable development goals, that we would actually publish our annual reports to show what contributions we make to the sustainable development goals. That's Paul Pullman, chairman of Unilever, which is just one of the companies that is building its business strategy around the SDGs. AlphaSource also builds its entire portfolio around them. And a few years back, Ali Goldstein wrote a report for Ecosystem Marketplace called Not-So-Niche Co-Benefits at the Intersection of Forest Carbon and Sustainable Development, 
which identified a powerful correlation between forest carbon projects and the SDGs. You can find a link to the report in the show notes for this episode, episode 21, at bionic-planet.com. But everything about wildlife works to me um, is is a, is a lovely story about saying, okay, this isn't working, so I'll pivot. But always with respect to the to the community first, and and respecting the idiosyncrasies, and 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 that's what we want to bring to you know moreover to this space, and and how we're going to allocate our dollars. When I hear people criticizing red, there's a lot of ideological resistance to it, and there there are some things that mechanism needed to be improved on but one thing that i've always found annoying and i hope you agree with me because i just said it's annoying but uh you know when they talk about red as an incentive to get people to change i I just don't see it as that and the reason is this let's say you're in indonesia and you have a choice okay am i going to do palm oil um or am i going to do red the the difference between what you'll earn by chopping the the forest and putting in a, a palm oil plantation and what you'll get from red. I remember I, I did the numbers once, and it's just the multiples. I always look at it more as an enabling mechanism because whenever I see people doing red, they're not doing it to get rich or to make money. Money is not their primary goal. They're doing it because they have something they want to achieve, and the money that red brings enables them to do it. It, 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 does, it aligns things properly. It makes it so that you can make money off of the forest by doing the right thing, by keeping it alive. But it, the, their earnings still are not what they would be if you chopped it and sold everything off, and they may never be. I wonder if you could just comment on this this whole idea of framing it. Is it just calling it an incentive seems to invite this kind of critique. Well, there, you know, what you just said is there's a, a an element of it that is true, actually. So, for example, we, uh, we met uh, uh, a fellow who supports the tribes who still kill elephants Mm -hmm. and that's a a behavior that we don't want to support right right? so but to your point you know we're trying to change that behavior and his argument was well you know they should be allowed to kill elephants you know so red is about biodiversity and and uh, protecting certain wildlife Um, but for folks who do want to kill elephants that that will create some conflict Mm -hmm. and so what what red has enabled, for example, Wildlife Works to do is to provide alternative lifestyles or alternative livelihoods for people who had relied on being elephant hunters in the past. So, uh, and and in his community, there's no no problem with that. Um, but if you're talking to someone whose father and grandfather and great grandfather did that, um, you know, initially there can be some pushback. So. That could be a matter of perspective, but we've come to a place in, in this, on this planet where it's not sustainable to kill elephants indefinitely. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if you did believe in, in, in that, which I don't, but if, if you did believe in that, that's not a, a, a livelihood you can pass on to your grand, grandchildren mm-hmm. now because there won't be elephants left. So it, there's really no argument for that anyway but that would just be one ex- example of where right. you can get pushed and of back. course the of, of course most places it's illegal now <laughs> so so there's that um but i'll i'll answer your question i guess with an with an anecdote so we, we recently had someone in our office who has a huge actually multiple concessions in the drc um on which he's been doing uh timber and not sustainable timber for in his family for a long time and uh 
his kids had pressured him to convert and he's now con- he's now in the process of of with the help of i think some some project developers who've already been out there in the space um converting to red plus um so i think there are there are other factors besides just financial the uh and legal and what have you uh, that are pushing people towards red. And, in, you know, I, I think the finances are different depending on the geographies that you're talking about. And in terms of what's going back into the communities themselves, I think uh, the communities are much better served by red. Maybe the developers themselves could make more. But to your point, most of them are in this for the right reasons to begin with. One issue that I've always found uh, a little bit frustrating because I come from the private sector as well and I started out in trading and then I went into media and now I'm here and I found when I first got into this it just seemed that everything was way slower than it needed to be. I found it incredibly frustrating and ridiculous and then and then as I came to understand especially on the climate talks how complicated it is to get to almost 200 countries to agree on a 4,000 little points like that. I mean as I came to understand the complexity of it I, I, I began to really appreciate the slowness and the need for that kind of meticulous um, and I, I kind of feel it's some some ways I became part of the problem because suddenly I became I came to understand the problem almost too well and wasn't doing anything to move it forward. And it, but at the same time, you have to have those ducks in a row if if people are going to be able to come in with money and finance. Do you feel do you have the same perception? Is this accurate? And uh, second is, do you have any thoughts on how we can work through it? Yeah. So we launched in 07. So we're, we're, we feel your pain in terms of <laughs> frustration. And uh, we really expected a much bigger um, response. Um, we were very lucky in that we had foundational investors who just cared about the impact. And uh, they, they carried us along and we survived. Um, but I'll tell you, in the last three years, we've seen such, such an upsurge in support and particularly uh, institutional support. So it's a, it's a complete turnaround. So we're, we're really encouraged. Obviously what happened in Paris was a, a key uh, domino that had to happen and uh, we're thrilled with that. Uh, and in the meantime now we've had, we've been at the table with some talk of some really big numbers coming into the Red Plus market. So we couldn't be uh, more optimistic than we are about yeah. where it's headed. I mean, uh, yeah, I think we like our timing it for exactly the reason you said is that uh, things, certain things from a policy standpoint, from a regulatory standpoint, had to happen and had to happen kind of slowly, right? Um, here's the VCS booth right here, right? That These guys had to come in, had to create something that was recognized and, and replicable. Um, that's just one example, obviously, but um, so we're, I feel like we're coming in at a, at a great time, especially on the heels of Paris, which is now two years ago. Frameworks are, are in place. We can come in and be a little more rah-rah and say, hey, let's go, uh, rather than if we had come into this seven, eight years ago, where we'd still have to kind of hurry up and wait, mm-hmm. so, to your point, yeah. We've also had a... Uh, a many many meetings and conferences before this where they debated the the definition of impact and whether it was even possible and you know if there was any hope that it would ever work and so now we're beyond that and and people you know this is now an ecosystem and we've seen a lot of collaboration at this conference conference which has been very nice to see and and so we think it's headed in the right direction yeah absolutely and in in other you know noel talked about how we've been in the impact space and and whether you're here 
talking about carbon or whether you're you know talking about social impact or other impact conferences that we've gone to in the states which is really lagging um as noel said there's a lot of hand wringing there's a lot of people out there saying okay what's our definition you know there's a lot of policy makers there's a lot of academics who are saying oh let's get our terminology right um I, what I'm seeing lately is that there's a there's kind of a younger generation now uh, coming in this millennial generation that you know they 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 don't see these barriers that that we've put up they just say well this doesn't make sense so let's do this and and I I see it's actually kind of working you know so there I think there's an energy right now. Uh, overall in the impact space of saying, you know, this is just not the way you do it. I, I read an interesting stat, I don't know if it's true, <laughs> but that some ungodly percentage of millennials are vegan and vegetarian, like 47%. It's, it's amazing, right? But, but that just shows you the direction that, that we're going. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a figure that you, if you had told me that 10 years ago, I would have said you were insane. But it just goes to show you that, that people are, are voting with their wallets um, and they're, they're using whatever arrows they have in their quiver to make change, um, whether that's going to their local grocery store and, and buying something that's local or sustainable or, you know, has the, the Rainforest Alliance frog on it, or whether they're here at Garvinex with trying to move money into an area that desperately needs it. If I'm an entrepreneur and I've got an idea uh, and I'm, 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 you know, I'm doing something that I think is a real sustainable pro program project, what do I need to have? What ducks do I already have to have in a row before I approach you or someone like you guys? So that's a really great question because uh, uh, if, if someone is conserving a forest, they don't need to be Red Plus certified for us to sit down with them and talk about how we can help uh, with a, a landscape approach. So uh, I guess the answer is someone who, who is going down that path, we'd be delighted to share what we've learned and, and how we can be helpful if, if we can. Um, so there wouldn't necessarily be uh, criteria. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, anything that we deem uh, investable, we'll happily look at, and it's across the, the, the capital structure. So you know, if their seed, if their seed stage, if it's just an idea, um, we may not, we may not say, okay, we're ready to invest in you, but we may, but we're happy to help them and and put them into a place where they can be successful, and follow their progress, and hopefully get them to a place where they're investable somewhere in the future through the fund. Richard Frenatful and Noel Claire Lacan wrapping up this edition of Bionic Planet. And again, if you like what you hear. Be sure to share Bionic Planet with friends and give us a good rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you access podcasts. You can also help by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com, where you can show your appreciation for as little as $1 per month. In our next edition, we'll be speaking with His Excellency Ronald Jumeau, Seashell's Ambassador for Climate Change. He worked with the Nature Conservancy's NatureVest initiative to develop the first debt swap for helping small-scale fishermen sustainably manage their fisheries. It's one of these really important stories that can get kind of wonky, but he explained it to me incredibly well, and I'll try to make it even clearer by snipping out the digressions and dropping in little interjections when it gets confusing. By the way, how do you like this format? I've gotten good feedback on these interjections I've been making. Do they help you or are they distractions? Any feedback is welcome, and you can reach me at Steve 
at bionic-planet.com. Once again, that's steve at bionic-planet.com. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.